Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a refreshing and captivating interview with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal some entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories, some you've never heard before. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is presented by Dynamic Manufacturing. Since 1955, Dynamic Manufacturing has a relentless commitment to quality and customer service when it comes to your automotive needs. They've been named General Motors Supplier of the Year 22 times. And whether it's remanufacturing, machining, electrification, motorsports, and much more, there's nothing Dynamic Manufacturing can't do. Find them on the web at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. And by Raul Jewelers, who offer the finest in rings, bracelets, earrings, necklaces, and much more since 1982. They specialize in custom design, so if you're looking for that right gift, especially during the holidays, head to Raul Jewelers on Barrington Road in Hoffman Estates, and they're on the web at rawljewelers.com. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is also sponsored by the Polina Market, purveyors of the finest meats. Look for them at polinamarket.com and by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dogs and a landmark institution since 1893. They're located at viennabeef.com. This week we feature the incomparable Doc Emmerich. Well, I was wanting in the worst way to become a professional hockey announcer from the time I was 14 and saw my first game in Fort Wayne, Indiana, 1960. So I darkened the door of, uh, of the Allen County Memorial Coliseum in Fort Wayne as often as I could, paying my way in and sitting in a corner section and broadcasting games to myself. If there's a Mount Rushmore of play-by-play -play announcers, Doc Emmerich surely belongs on it. While he ended his distinguished career after the 2020 Stanley Cup Finals, he remains a very popular figure because of his myriad achievements. And I bet you didn't know, he's the president of the NHL's Pronunciation Guide. How apropos for a gentleman who should write its encyclopedia for vocabulary and catchphrases. And it's hard to fill the shoes of an icon who, like Marv Albert in the NBA, was the soundtrack of his sport. And to think, he grew up just a few slap shots away from Chicago, so, Doc Emmerich, tell me a story I don't know. John Davidson and I are in the organ loft at Chicago Stadium in the Stanley Cup final. It is Chicago against Pittsburgh. And that was where we decided to do our open. In the wonderful atmosphere of Chicago Stadium, where many fans stand the whole game, there aren't many bad seats, and we've got one of the best ones for the start of everything tonight. Hi, everybody. Along with John Davidson, I'm Mike Emmerich, and you're witnessing some NHL Stanley Cup history. Never before has there been a playoff game in June, but we're having one tonight. Uh, Jiggs McDonald and Bill Clement were doing the play-by-play -play of the game, and John and I were to do the intermissions. And it was uh, the 1992 Stanley Cup final on Sports Channel America. And I had arranged with our producer, John Shannon, that after John and I did the open, that Wayne Mesmer would come on camera with me and talk about what it was like to sing the anthem just before he was going to do it. See this face? You may not have seen this face before these playoffs, but most hockey fans have, and they've heard the wonderful voice of Wayne Mesmer. Wayne, 
The players have a warm-up before the game. Do you warm up, and if so, where do you do it? I uh, kind of swing from a rope, Mike, and uh, do a Tarzan yell and try and make a make a sound you can hear over this crowd. And uh, I'd love to chat, but it's showtime here at the old stadium, so I better go sing. All right. The game doesn't start until he says it's going to start, and he says it's going to start right now. I've always been fascinated ever since I believe it was in 1985 that the Chicago fans applaud solidly through the national anthem. And anyone that arrives there that's never seen a Blackhawks game is startled for the first time because they don't realize what all the noise during the anthem is about. And people have told me that they were, they were a little shocked about that until they until someone next to them said, this is what we do here. Well, anyway, uh, so John and I do our customary open and John talks eloquently as usual about the players. And then Wayne steps over on cue and I talk to him about um, his going to Illinois Wesleyan and, uh, and what it's like to stand there. And he talks about the crowd and how it is very difficult for him to hear himself because of the noise at Chicago Stadium. And anyone who saw a game there and saw and heard the anthem sung there realized that the roof was such that it, way, it may not have been perfect for concerts, but it was wonderful for sports events because the sound just rumbled through that place. Uh, that one, I have never told anybody. It was ear splitting and particularly in 1991 during the, um, there was the All-Star game. And of course, that's when the troops were overseas. And I don't think it's ever been louder. And it started from the very beginning. And I think that's when America really got a chance to understand what that was all about. I was in Chicago at United Center. Now, Eddie Belfour was present that day that you were talking about at the All-Star Game. And he was interviewed during the game because, as I recall, he should have been on the all-star team, but he was not. And that was a subject of controversy. I'm going from my memory here, but I, I was sitting at home at that time recovering from cancer surgery, but I was watching the telecast that day and I was very much taken by the display as well. So now years pass. I'm at United Center because the Blackhawks have invited us to go to a suite because uh, there are several of us in town, uh, Chris Chelios, Ed Snyder, um, Rob Ryan Souter. I'm sorry, not Ryan Souter. Um, Gary Souter. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. Uh, uh, because we are the next night being inducted into the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame. So we're there to watch the Sharks play the Blackhawks um, in a game at United Center. And so the anthem is about to start, and the chords, opening chords, have not been struck yet. But I sense everyone is starting to gather around and, and both teams are around tapping their goal, tender good luck, and then they're going to go to the blue line. So immediately I walk out the door of the suite because I want to be out in the crowd to hear the whole po uh, possibility of uh, what the uh, emotion of the anthem is going to be like. So I step into the aisle uh, in the lower bowl and right behind me is Ed Belfour. I said, Eddie what are you doing out here? He said, <laughs> I'm not missing this. And I thought to myself, how many times has this guy been in uniform 
and heard the national anthem at either Chicago Stadium or here, and he's not going to miss it this one more time as a civilian. Uh, but that just shows you what it's like. I was talking with one of the equipment managers uh, of one of the other teams um, that came into United Center. We were talking about the anthem, and he said, one afternoon, we were there for a game against the Blackhawks, and the game was on national television. And during the anthem, the glass behind our bench was shaking. And I looked, and nobody was touching it. That's how the place <laughs> rumbled. And he said, it has an effect, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. You know what I find amazing? President of the Pronunciation Guide. What is the toughest name you ever had to deal with? Oh, I don't know. There were a lot of them, but uh, probably uh, I was I was always relieved that Sergei Krasov of the Blackhawks did not have a brother didn't have a brother on the team because <laughs> if they were on the power play together, you you just probably go to first names. When I first broke into the NHL in in the early '80s, the Stastny brothers. Uh, there were three of them and they were all on the power play together. And I just went to first names because, you know, you, you, you couldn't go fast enough. Uh, there was one, uh, Bill Clement and I worked together a lot. And there was one, for some reason or other, I had a mental block on with Sergei Nemchinov. I kept saying Nemchinov, uh, Nemchimov. And he said, why don't you practice saying Nemnov, Nemnov, Nemnov? And that would get the N in there instead of the M. Um, you know, it's funny, you, you think you're lingually okay, and then you blow a simple name that's only uh, three syllables instead of one of those Kriva Krasov kind of names. But, um, you know, we all wind up with things that become mental blocks for us, I guess. You could have gone the route of Harry Carey and tried to pronounce it backwards. <laughs> uh, <Otto. laughs> I'm wondering, what has retired life been and has there been any announcing withdrawals because of it no it really hasn't uh, because it uh, hasn't really been retirement yet and here's why uh george back in i guess march of 2020 when shortly after uh the nhl went on pause uh, it was determined that the release of the autobiography that Kevin Allen did so much work on, who had been the longtime hockey correspondent for USA Today, he co-wrote the book with me, which meant that he did all the work, but he got lowercase billing on the front cover. And it was determined that the release date of the book would be uh, October 20th, I think, was when it came out. Well, that had long ago been determined, but I didn't make up my mind about retirement until between rounds two and three of the Stanley Cup playoffs, which was right around Labor Day. And then the last thing I wanted to do was to make this a big deal during the playoffs and then not to intercept the celebration of the winning team. And uh, trying to get there and to get a trigger pull of a shot that went wide that time was Goodrow. And the Tampa Bay Lightning have won the Stanley Cup. Nor 
free agency nor the draft. And when I discussed this with NBC and Sam Flood, he, he graciously accepted, immediately said, would you stay on and do some video essays with us? And would one of them be one that we could release on the day that you announce your retirement? Well, because it was football season, the people that edited video essays were already tied up with Sunday night football. So that limited the days too. This is kind of a long story, I guess, George, but uh, in essence, it came down to one day that uh, out of the whole calendar before the book came out that I could announce my retirement because with the book, you had to have a lot of interviews and I wasn't going to be coy about the questions I was going to get about my future. Once I started doing book interviews, I wanted that settled. I leave you with sincere thanks, your hockey friend. Doc. Who doesn't love jewelry? Who wouldn't love Rawl Jewelers? Family owned and operated for nearly 40 years, Rawl Jewelers offers the very best in fine jewelry and engagement rings, including mined and lab grown diamonds. And they utilize the latest technology and offer jewelry repair on the premises. Rawl Jewelers has a glittering array of rings, necklaces, earrings, bracelets, and watches, and offers custom-designed jewelry on the premises. And if you have the most specific questions, Rawl Jewelers has four graduate gemologists on staff. With over 200 years of combined experience and expertise, it's no wonder Rawl Jewelers is one of the leading shops of its kind. This is where my wife and I got our wedding bands many years ago, and it's safe to say, when you walk in as a customer, you're going to leave as a friend. Rawl Jewelers is located at 3001 Barrington Road in Hoffman Estates, right off I-90 West. Rawl Jewelers, when only the very best will do. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. We return with Doc Emmerich on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I have to tell you, I love hockey. I know you do too. And I love its announcers, and that's really easy for me, having grown up with Bobby Hall and Stan McKeaton, and of course, Lloyd Pettit behind the mic, but apparently so did you. So tell me a story I don't know about 1970 and trips to the old Chicago Stadium. Well, I was wanting in the worst way to become a professional hockey announcer from the time I was 14 and saw my first game in Fort Wayne, Indiana, 1960. So I darkened the door of, uh, of the Allen County Memorial Coliseum in Fort Wayne as often as I could, paying my way in and sitting in a corner section and broadcasting games to myself. But I kept doing these tapes and sending them out to professional teams. And, I, and back then, of course, you got analog rejection letters, and all of them were rejection letters, and I kept sending these tapes out. So anyhow, uh, I needed a job after I got through graduate school at Miami University in, in 1969, uh, the last complete season that Beauchamp Beckler was coached there before he went to a place in Ann Arbor. And 
I took a job at Geneva College in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania as their director of broadcasting. Well, the NAB convention was something that traditionally the director of broadcasting at Geneva would take the students to. It was located, the NAB convention back then, National Association of Broadcasters was held in Chicago. Well, it occurred uh, in the springtime in uh, the first week of April in 1970. And on the morning of the famous game, when the Chicago Blackhawks politely uh, eliminated the Montreal Canadiens with five empty net goals in the third period after the Canadiens had to score so many goals to try and qualify. That day, I walked from the Oxford House Hotel where the students and I were staying very early in the morning because I was understanding that at nine o'clock at Chicago Stadium, they were going to put tickets on sale for the first game of the playoffs, which was going to be on Wednesday. So I, I got on my black suit with my white shirt and black tie, and I walked from the Oxford House. Now, it is located very close to the Michigan Avenue Bridge over the Chicago River, but it's on the south side of that bridge. I don't think the Oxford House is still a hotel anymore. Anyway, I walked down... And I knew that the stadium was on Madison Avenue. This is a naive kid from Indiana who had never been to the stadium in his life. I walked down as far as I could down Michigan Avenue to Madison. Then I started walking and I kept walking, waiting to see Chicago Stadium in the distance. You know how far this is? <laughs> and at that time, there was something in Chicago history called Skid Row. Oh, yeah. This is Sunday morning, and mm -hmm. I, the only thing I can figure is that the residents of, uh, of some of the more difficult parts of Chicago at that era thought that I was maybe a pastor on my way to speak at some church. <laughs> Here I was in my black suit in, early in the morning on Sunday. Anyway, the ring around Chicago Stadium for tickets was all the way uh, uh, if you can imagine, the ticket office was halfway down Madison. Uh, the doors were halfway down Madison, and that was where the line would start. Well, the line was all the way down to where it would turn um, um, around the building. Mm -hmm. So I got in line. Now, at about 9.15, I'd gotten in line about 8.30, and the line was long. At about 9.15, all of a sudden, people are leaving. And of course, I wanted to find out before I left, because I'd sacrificed greatly to get there, what on earth has happened here? And so maybe this is a typical story of the era. Um, uh, one of the guys who had been near the front of the line said, oh, they rolled up the window and said, no tickets are going to be sold today. And the guy at the front of the line the fan at the front of the line drove his fist through the window and broke the glass. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> and so, uh. so we're all going home. There aren't going to be any tickets to the first game of the playoffs because I was going to be in town long enough, perhaps to see game one on Wednesday. But so uh, no luck there. Now, but I wonder, as you were growing up in Indiana, were there also trips to Wrigley Field, Comiskey Park, Soldier Field? 
Yes. The first time I ever saw a Major League Baseball game was at Comiskey Park in Chicago. And I never realized until later the sacrifice that my parents made because the, the roads to, um, to Chicago from Indiana, um, this predated the Indiana Toll Road and, and uh, almost the Chicago Skyway. But to go from, uh, from Indiana on uh, rural roads from north central Indiana to Chicago at that time uh, required a great deal of sacrifice. And it was a long trip. Uh, they were playing the New York Yankees on a Sunday afternoon. It was delayed by rain some, and uh, we sat in the upper deck in right field. We did not stay for the end of the game. The Yankees, of course, won like they always did. Uh, Phil Rizzuto was in the game. Uh, Yogi Berra was in the game. Mickey Mantle was in the game. And Minnie Minoso was in the game. Those are some of the people I remember. Um, the next year, we went back again. And this time, we took the train from nearby Huntington, Indiana, which meant we had to leave at 5 in the morning on the train, uh, getting up at 3.30 to drive to Huntington. And we had to also leave a little early from the game to get from, uh, to make the evening train back to Huntington. So we weren't able to stay for the entire game, but the White Sox defeated Harmon Killebrew, the rookie and the Washington Senators <laughs> by a score of 20 to two. <laughs> that, you wouldn't forget that. And the first trip to Wrigley was memorable as well, just because it was the first time I got to see my Pirates play in 1959 and, and they did win in extra innings. When you did your first game for the Port Huron Flags, did you pretty much know then this was what you wanted to do? Yes, I, I had a chance uh, to do two years with Bowling Green and only the second periods because a staff member did the first and third periods. So I'd had a little baptism of it. I got 18 periods in in the first year and 18 periods in in the second year. And I knew this was really more what I wanted to do than to teach school, even though that was a wonderful profession that my brother and my parents had been in all of their uh, professional lives. But uh, this was more what I wanted to do. And then uh, it was just a matter of whether I would get a chance to do it. So I sent the tapes out again, like I had before. But this time I had a real air check that uh, was of my work that people had actually heard, someone other than just myself. And uh, after three years of sitting on one of those old tapes from the stands in Fort Wayne, there was an opening in Port Huron and the guy went to his file and uh, opened the file and took out one of the tapes. The man's name was John Wismer. And as an old broadcast uh, fanatic, perhaps George, you heard of his brother, Harry Wismer, who was one of the national uh, the national icons in sports broadcasting and the first owner of the American Football League, New York Titans, who later became the Jets. Uh, Harry married Henry Ford, one of Henry Ford's daughters, and moved to New York and got a franchise in the American Football League. Over these last 40 plus years, you and hockey have gotten along famously, Doc, and during this wonderful relationship, you developed a style, including a vocabulary, the likes of which is the envy and joy of many. I believe I read somewhere, someone dubbed you the king of verbs, which I think is a fabulous title. When did this start? And was it natural 
for you to use such vivid and imaginative descriptions to call the game? But it's squibbed across. Skittered one over, knifed away from Pacioretty, ladled back in by Sharp. Speared back out to center where it can be galloped at and taken. Well, it's kind of how I talk, and I, I know the dogs don't understand it. You may have heard one in the background <laughs> yeah. a moment ago. Um, but yes, it, it is how I talk. But I did get some advice uh, that year in, at Miami of Ohio because we were an hour away from Dayton, which had a team in the IHL, the same league that Fort Wayne was in. And uh, an announcer named Lyle Steeg, he was the Dayton Gems announcer, um, he suggested to me, because I would ask anyone what they, if they had any advice about a life of broadcasting hockey, and he said, we have so many th repetitive um, things that occur in a hockey game, and if you can come up with different ways of saying the same thing, that will help. If every time you say dumped in from center ice, when it happens, you'll drive people nuts. So that was an encouragement to me to try to come up with different ways of saying things. But um, that plus uh, I had some teachers in elementary school and in high school who encouraged uh, the development of vocabulary. One of them was a fifth grade teacher who said, uh, if you can use a word uh, for the first time five times, it becomes yours for life. And so that was helpful too. Listen up, OEMs. First impressions are lasting ones. Dynamic Manufacturing's impressive complex in Hillside, Illinois, includes nearly a million square feet of operating space. I had a chance to view some of it, and I was overwhelmed by the organization, technology, and dedicated workforce. Dynamic Manufacturing provides solutions for engineering, manufacturing, machining, and logistics, and they can re-energize your electric and energy storage systems. They can machine any project, no matter the size. And when it comes to motorsports, they're your trusted partner for chasing podiums with their custom torque converters. Dynamic Manufacturing is your one-stop for all your remanufacturing needs, and they can't wait to engineer a custom solution for getting maximum value from experienced parts. Dynamic Manufacturing, where there's nothing they can't do. a lot of those words there's no question you know you worked a lot of blackhawks games including three stanley cups so i want to start with the fabled one perhaps maybe the nightmarish finish for you tell me a story i don't know about patrick kane's winning goal and why you want to do a do-over <laughs> well I, uh, nbc uh very politely allowed me to do a do-over of it uh in the documentary that uh, was so wonderful that they surprised me with back in early January. And they, uh, they came to our town in Port Huron and allowed me to uh, show, they showed me the video and allowed me to do it over again, but you don't get a do over. That's just the way life works. Back to be taken by Campbell. Here's Campbell handing on to Kane again. Lots of head fakes there trying to shake Demon. Threw one in front of the But yeah, we got into sudden death overtime and uh, uh, the fact that um, other people doing my job for other networks uh, lost sight of the puck too, 
uh, is not any consolation because as Patrick Waugh, the goaltender said one night when he let in seven, I'm paid to get those and I didn't. But it was an exciting game and it changed, uh, it changed uh, score, of course, all during the evening and Philadelphia scored late and uh, forced overtime. And then uh, Patrick Kane um, took a pass from Brian Campbell and let a shot go from the left circle and it disappeared somewhere uh, past Michael Layton. And uh, then uh, Patrick uh, told me the following Halloween day, the next time that I saw him was when the Devils were in Chicago at United Center. And after the morning skate, when the rest of the pack moved away from his dressing stall, I sat next to him and I said, okay, what did you see? He said, well, I, I let the shot go and it disappeared. And as I got closer to the net, I saw it was in the back of the net. And I looked at the referee and he wasn't doing anything. Normally they point at the net and he wasn't doing anything. And I knew he didn't see it. And I saw it in the net and I yelled, it's in. And then I realized that my job at that point was to sell it. So I headed to the other end of the ice and I was selling it as hard as I could. Jonathan Taves was at the bench and he said, I didn't know whether to go over the boards and celebrate or not because we didn't want to get a penalty. And then of all things, the, the officials huddled and then it was announced over the public address system, the play is under review. Well, how can it be over the pucks in the net? <laughs> Word has gotten to the Blackhawks what you have just seen. The strange thing is now, years later, uh, one of the off-ice officials in Philadelphia, because they, you know, there used to be goal judges that were in a, in a tall chair behind the net in little, uh, what, what younger people won't understand, uh, but older people will, was a phone booth-sized cubicle yeah, yeah, yeah. Be, behind the net. And they would watch to see the puck cross the line. And when it did, they would turn the light on. And many times their word was golden and that would stand and the referees would trust them. Well, time passed and then uh, video replay came in and everything changed. Well, they were banished to the upper tier and their instructions were, you can turn the light on because that's just for the benefit of the fans to know that a puck has gone in. But the only time you can turn the light on is when you see the referee point at the net. Well, here Patrick has scored the goal and the referee has still not pointed at the net. In fact, they have now asked the public address announcer to say the, the goal is under the, the play is under review. But that night, the video goal judge who has the light switch next to him up in the rafters is sitting at that end of the press box. And he saw it go in when Patrick shot it, but he can't turn the light on or it would have saved us an awful lot of grief. Anyway, long story short, Patrick, uh, that morning, he said, yeah, I listened. To, I listened to all the calls and some of them were pretty funny. I said, yeah, mine was one of them. He said, yeah, I know, but that's what happened. And, and so that's what was going through my mind. And I realized I had to sell it. So I was selling all the way. Yeah. Uh, well, I shot, I saw it go right through his legs and, um, you know, I was sticking right uh, under the pad in the net. So I don't think anyone saw the puck in the net. And I just booked it to the other end. I knew it was in right away and uh, tried to sell the celebration a bit. And 
uh, everyone came down, and uh, <clears throat> I think some guys were still kind of a little iffy to, to see if the puck was in the net. And, uh, you know, I saw the coaches there uh, pointing at the puck and just jumping around. You know, I was at WGN Radio then, so I was in Philadelphia that night. I was on the Blackhawks bench after the game was over, so I didn't see or hear your call until, you know, the, the next day. All I can tell you is you could not have done a better job. The end was confusing. That's exactly how you conveyed it. I, I want to move to 2015. It's game six at the United Center, the Hawks in Tampa. If the Hawks win, they win the Stanley Cup. But this was a rather bizarre night, as it turned out. Yes, uh, through history uh, in our telecasts and in telecasts that I've watched back through time on various networks, including CBC, there is always this grand moment sometime during the third period when it appears the Stanley Cup is going to be won that night, whether it's a game seven or a game five, where uh, the camera goes to an isolated room and this box is opened and the Stanley Cup is taken out and it looks just grand. Well, the tradition is that the cup is not in the building until sometime during the latter part of the second period or in the third when it arrives. And when it arrives, then we uh, of the television community are given the word that it's okay to show it. And so this being a tradition that goes back for so long uh, was was in vogue. Now, the, the cup belongs to the Hall of Fame. Uh, and so the Hall of Fame uh, is in charge of getting it there. And they are in charge of bringing it to the ice and turning it over to the league, which then presents it to the victorious team. Well, the Hall of Fame was still honoring that tradition that night of delivering it during the game. That night in Chicago, there were tornadoes touching down in the suburbs. There was torrential rain, there was lightning, and the Kennedy was closed. And in the third period, our producer Sam Flood said, uh, we have a situation here and we have been asked to uh, embargo some information. And he said, Doc, here's, here's the information, and I may violate the embargo, but I will tell you to do so later on, but the cuff isn't here. The con Smythe isn't here. Uh, because of all the bad weather, it is somewhere between out near O'Hare, uh, where the uh, hotel is that it had been kept at, and here. Um, but I may decide that we're gonna to have to tell you uh, to tell the audience that it's not here when it becomes apparent that it's not and, and the Hawks are going to win it because Duncan Keith had scored relatively early in the game and Patrick Kane had tucked a beautiful shot in in the third period from the right circle. Now it was two nothing. And it was pretty apparent that, that it was gonna end that night. Five to go. For the third time in six years, the Blackhawks are Stanley Cup champions. So now, in the waning minutes of the game, uh, I get the word that now we need to go ahead and say that it's not here. So we revealed the fact that 
due to all of the torrential rain that the, um, the cup was not in the building yet, but it was on the way. And uh, thanks to a police escort, it was being sped along the way. But obviously some streets were flooded and impassable, not only for the people driving the cup and the Smythe Trophy, but the police too. And so they were having to search their way around. The Kennedy, of course, was closed. And eventually uh, the horn sounds and the handshake line takes place and the Blackhawks are still celebrating on the ice. And eventually in the, uh, up the ramp and in the back door comes the vehicle that is bearing the cup and the Smythe trophy. So the presentation can be made. It may uh, have appeared to people uh, that, that the celebration of the Blackhawks on the ice after they had shaken hands with the lightning and, and were around each other had, uh, had gone on a little longer than normal <laughs> before the Conn Smythe Trophy was presented to Duncan Keith and then later on the Stanley Cup was presented. But uh, I realize that's a longer story than usual, but it's a little more involved. And, uh, and so um, procedures changed after that night. And uh, so the cup is around a lot earlier and it's much more secure and they don't take the chances that they did then. No one, I mean no one does hot dogs better than Vienna beef. That's because they've been doing them since 1893. Imagine biting into a delicious all beef Vienna hot dog, dragged through the garden which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and celery salt, and just try that on one of their Polish sausages. Vienna products are available everywhere, from your supermarkets, restaurants, the ballparks, and zoos, just to mention a few, and you can purchase them online at ViennaBeef.com. And look for their farm acres chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. Ever been to the Polina Market? If not, what are you waiting for? It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meats and much more since 1949. Their steaks are top of the line, but there's also chicken, fish, and those mouth-watering sausages. And you might spend hours just perusing their frozen food section, all made fresh. And now the expanded Polina Market offers beer, wine, and sandwiches. It's become a one-stop shop, making your in-store experience well worth your time. And you can still order online. I've been shopping here since 1984. Paulina Market is simply the best and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at paulinamarket.com. I'm not sure many remember, Doc, that you called some NFL games and one in particular with a Hall of Fame quarterback. Tell me a story I don't know about a rather hot day in Tampa in 1992. Well, um, it goes back to the previous week. Uh, the way it works with uh, NFL games, or at least it did at that time, is that um, you go in on Thursday and then you go to the home team practice Friday, the visiting team practice Saturday, the game is Sunday afternoon, you fly home Sunday night. So CBS needed someone to fill in for Tim Ryan because he was doing uh, the US Open tennis tournament. And they were having uh, Tim paired 
uh, for the entire season with a recently retired three-time uh, Super Bowl champion named Matt Millen, who was a brand new broadcaster. And so they needed someone to fill in. I had just done the 92 Olympics for CBS. And so Rick Gentile, who was in charge of CBS Sports at that time with Ed Gorin, uh, said, well, let's, let's try Mike on a couple of weekends here until Tim can get back from the tennis. A week ago, the hottest day ever for Buccaneers football at Tampa Stadium, 95 and 110 down on the field. We might eclipse that today. Temperature right now, 87, and a welcome breeze as the Buccaneers face the Packers. Good afternoon, everyone. Along with Matt Millen, I'm Mike Emmerich. Vinny Testaverde has fought off the flu. He anyway, Matt had played at San Francisco for the Packers coach, Mike Holmgren, and Mike was about to coach his first game against the Minnesota Vikings and Dennis Green. It was going to be his first game and Matt's first game as a color analyst and my first game since college 25 years earlier uh, as play-by-play. -play. So we were all green. Uh, but anyway, the, now we get to Friday and the Packers practice. And um, we sit with a few of the players including um, uh, Doug Mikowski, uh, the uh, starting quarterback for that first game that the Packers are going to play against the Vikings. And uh, then we finally sit with, uh, with Mike Holmgren. And before we're about to get up to leave, after we chat with Holmgren, he said, did you talk to our quarterback? And, and Matt said, yeah, we were just down with Mikowski. And he said, no, no, the other guy. Uh, and Matt said, no. Uh, we just talked to Mikowski. He said, well, let me tell you about the other guy. And so he went on to tell us in great descriptive terms about this rookie that they just got from Atlanta named Brett Favre. So we knew that there was something in, in Mike's uh, ultimate plan about Favre. So anyway, the second week comes. Favre doesn't get in the first week. Fouad Revez kicks an overtime field goal. Minnesota wins. Second week is that game that you mentioned down in Tampa Bay, and uh, it doesn't go well for Mikowski, and so Favre comes in, and his first, uh, his first play as a Packer is a pass, and it ricochets off an on-rushing lineman for the Buccaneers, and then goes right back into Favre's arms, and he's tackled for a loss. Going to complete, if he throws, his first NFL completion and it's to himself knocked down by Ray Seals at the 10 but it is his first Packer pass and it is a completion and it is to himself think about that for a minute you called his first pass and it was a pass to himself yes <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> it's it's uh, I guess it's still on YouTube but uh, it's there's a certain element of surprise in my voice and and Matt steps in, and of course, uh, they, they show a replay of it, and it's, it's kind of fun. You also had the distinct pleasure of calling a baseball game for your favorite team, the Pittsburgh Pirates, and you did so nationally about five years ago with another guest of this podcast, Bob Costas. What was that like? Well, it was marvelous in that um, um, Andrea Kramer had done a, a, a great piece on HBO Sports, spending time with Joyce and me, and uh, going to three different cities to put this together 
And uh, the next day I got a call from the 314 area code. And I said, gee, I don't know anybody in the 314 area code. Um, but it, it was flashing on my screen. So I picked it up and it was Bob. And he said, I just saw the HBO special and and Andrea said that you might want to do a Pirates game when she was, uh, she was closing off the feature. I think we can make that happen. And so he went into great detail about how it would all happen the next year if I wanted to. And I said, yeah, that would be great. He said, well, you and I will work together. I'll do the first couple of innings and get all of the sponsored elements out of the way. And then you can take over and you can go as long as you want. Uh, well, sure enough, he was good to his word. And it was a game with the Chicago Cubs in July of that next year. And um, he spent time the day before. And then we, we, uh, we talked to the managers of, of both teams and we went in the clubhouses before. And then sure enough, he did the first three innings. And then he said, you go as long as you want. Here is the moment you have been waiting for. These are your innings with Addison Russell to lead it off in the fourth. A line drive is snared by Breeze. One up, one down. Nicasio with the 2 2 to Montero. High and deep. And gone. And we are tied. Well, after the fifth inning, I said, I can go one more inning, but I've used all my stuff by now. <laughs> so it, it's amazing how much you can get in between pitches. And then. Um, because my team, he said, he, he waived all rules of impartiality. So he let me cheer for my team on the air. Uh, and then uh, by the ninth inning, they were ahead and they rarely were against the Cubs at that time. I think they played 19 times and they only won four, but they were ahead. And so, um, he let me come back in and do the top of the ninth and, and close it off, which uh, Mark Melanson was the closer at that time. And he sure enough did come in and close out and uh, defeat the Cubs. So it was a lifetime memory and it's, uh, I will not do play-by-play -play of baseball again because that was too perfect. And so you don't, <laughs> you don't try to over, overdo it. You just, you just enjoy a perfect setting like that. I ask this final question to all my guests. If not for sports, in hockey broadcasting, what would you have been? I would have probably taught uh, because there was a joy that I saw in that. Um, I don't know that public speaking per se is taught that much anymore as it was 50 years ago, but there was, there was fun in, in that uh, at Geneva when I taught there, it was an 18 week semester and uh, I made sure that the kids spoke in, up in front of their peers once a week. And so by the time you got to the 18th week, it was pretty impressive how good they got, especially some of them that had a little more verbal talents than others, and that's just the way it is. But it was, uh, it was kind of impressive to see how much they improved over a course of one 18 week semester, impressive to see. And so you took satisfaction in seeing how they grew uh, confidence wise and, and all of that. And I would think that a lifetime of that as my parents and my brother uh, found would be very satisfying and how uh, you could change lives that way. So that's probably what I would have done. Continued best of health to you, Doc, and may every day 
bring you the joy you so richly deserve. And thank you so much for telling me a story I don't know. George, thank you. I uh, greatly appreciate the opportunity to do that. My thanks to NBC Sports, HBO's Real Time Sports, the NHL, and CBS Sports for those spectacular highlights. And thanks as always to TJ Reeves for putting this podcast on the map, Will Hatzel for his deft editing and mixing, and Nicholas Tochi for our graphic designs. And to our generous sponsors, Dynamic Manufacturing, where there's nothing they can't do, and Raul Jewelers, top jewelers in the northwest suburbs on Barrington Road and Hoffman Estates. Come in as a customer, leave as a friend. Also, the Polina Market, purveyors of the finest meats and much more, and by the Vienna Beef Company, home of Chicago's hot dog and an institution since 1893. Tune in next week for another fascinating episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman. And that's all she wrote. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.